Welcome. This is Cascade Church Portland's podcast. We exist to invite all people to join us as we follow Jesus together in bringing heaven to earth. So let me start by asking a question. How many of you have heard the term uh, faith shift? Okay. Um, I first became familiar with it when Kathy Escobar, who's a pastor in Denver, came out with her book called Faith Shift. The subtitle explains what she means by it. Finding your way forward when everything you believe is falling apart, coming apart. She describes the experience as a spiritual vertigo, and I think that's really appropriate (laughs) description. Now, for some people who are uh, naturally flexible, kind of laid back, which is my husband, John, it's really low-key. A faith shift is just another way uh, to say that one's faith changes over time, and it's no big deal. When John has a change in his theology or view of life, it's like one minute he believes one thing, and then the next minute he'll wake up, have this epiphany, and say, oh, I don't believe that anymore. I believe this. There's absolutely no drama to his faith just whatsoever, <laughs> which is quite the opposite of me. Okay, I seem to have a lot of drama uh, when I try to navigate my spiritual life. Oh, this is kind of fun. I'm kind of swinging around so I don't have to move my neck. <laughs> I'm going to keep this thing. Okay, so my faith shifts feel uh, like a series of small earthquakes until the mountain blows its top. And then when the ash settles, I'm kind of looking around and think, okay, I am in a different place. If you've experienced a faith shift, it can be kind of traumatic, and it's scary because you're not sure what you're shifting to. This space of uncertainty is what I would call a desert or wilderness experience. Our story this morning is a story about a people who are going through a major faith shift, and it's going to require that they stay in the desert a bit longer, a lot longer. Now, we're a third of the way through our series in the book of Numbers, and um, if you remember our last series, we talked about one story from the life of Jacob, the one about his dream. He's on the run from his brother who wants to kill him. Um, A lot has happened between that story and where we are this morning, and so I want to kind of quickly run through it because it's important in order for you to understand what's happening in this story. So Jacob is eventually able to return home to Canaan. He he makes up, he reconciles with his brother, and he returns with a pretty big family, like four wives, 12 sons, and a daughter. Big. Now, one of his sons, Joseph, ends up in Egypt, and that's a really long, pretty raw story, but I don't have time to go into it. So Joseph ends up in Egypt, and unlike Jacob, Joseph is a pretty decent guy. And he's blessed by God, so much so that he ends up working his way to become the second in command next to Pharaoh. Now, fortunately for Pharaoh, Joseph's administrative skills save Egypt from this really bad um, famine that's hit a huge geographical area, including Canaan, where his family lives. So Joseph decides to bring his father and all his brothers and their families down to Egypt so that they can flourish in this new place. That's how the Israelites got there. 430 years pass, and now 
The current Pharaoh, who feels no obligation to Joseph, probably doesn't even know the history, is feeling threatened by this family that's now grown to be a huge group of people, nearly two million total. And they've never integrated into Egyptian society. So they're redlined into the floodplains of the Nile Delta, an area called Goshen, just north of Cairo, right there. That's the area. It's an easy place for the pharaoh to control them and enslave them. Life is unbearable for the people. They suffer under the cruelty of the Egyptians. But God responds to their cries, and that is uh, where Moses' story begins. So he's told by God, who's disguised as a burning bush, to go and set the Israelites free from under, the sla under slavery. Now, the Israelites may have been suffering, but at least their lives were, were predictable. But when Moses shows up, it gets like crazy and chaotic, beginning with some huge miracles that are called the 10 plagues. The last devastating plague finally convinces the Pharaoh to let the um, Israelites leave, except the path to the promised land is not a direct one. Exodus 13, 17 tells us, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through Philistine country, although that was shorter, for God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So on the map, here's the delta, and there's Canaan, and it makes sense. They go straight across, right? It's the shortest route, but the, that's Philistine country, and they are like scary big, and they're, they're warriors. They're scary. You know, later on, they're going to send Goliath against King David. So they're good fighters. Instead of taking that direct route then, God takes them south along the Red Sea, and he performs there, somewhere along there, don't know, <laughs> uh, that most, his most spectacular miracle of parting the, the waters so that they could pass through. From there, the Israelites set off on the long route around the desert peninsula. We know it as the Sinai Peninsula. They first head to Mount Sinai, right there at the bottom of the, side of the peninsula. And there they have a summit with God. Excuse the pun, but they meet with God. And there they get the Ten Commandments, and then they start building this elaborate, portable worship center. When all the prepping is completed, um, the Israelites finally leave Mount Sinai, and they start on their final leg of the journey up to Canaan. And they end up camping out in the desert of Paran, which is a little bit that way south, a little bit more. Yeah, that's the area there. They camp out there, and it's, it's pretty close to their destination. By the time they get there, things are pretty bad. It's been a year, maybe a year and a half, since they fled Egypt. Everyone's in a foul mood. And the people have been stretched to their limits. At this point, it's at this point that God suggests to Moses maybe commands, but anyway, suggests that he send some spies in to scope out the land that's been promised to them. So one leader from each of the 12 tribes um, is picked to go on this mission. And these are the instructions given to them. Numbers 13, verses 17 through 20. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, 
Go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are, the trees, are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. I can't help it, but I kind of picture these 12 guys running around with clipboards, checking off all the things that they're supposed to look for. That's, what, that's the image I get in my brain. But after 40 days of exploring, they return to the camp and they give a show and tell. Besides pomegranates and figs, they bring back one cluster of grapes that's so huge it takes two men to carry it on a pole between them. So yeah, they confirm that the land is flowing with milk and honey, which is a metaphor for fruitfulness. Then comes the big but, <laughs> verse 28, but the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea along the Jordan. In other words, the spies see a lot of scary people that they have to fight. The Hebrew word for that conjunction, but, is ephes, E-F-E-S. And it literally means nothing, zero. It's as if someone wrote a whole page of these wonderful descriptions of the land, and then they suddenly hit the delete button. One of the spies tries to counter the negative report, verse 30. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the other spies, they talk right over him. We can't attack these, those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. These are the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. The good land that was acknowledged just minutes before as being a, a, a huge source of food for the people transforms into this monster that's devouring the people. And the inhabitants, who I think were probably mostly normal people, cast these shadows that created giants in the minds of the spies. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. So the spies didn't just delete the goodness of the land, they deleted the goodness in themselves. They looked in the mirror and saw grasshoppers, powerless insects to be squashed. That's why I had that question. I wanted a question about bugs at the beginning. So the report from the spies has an immediate and negative impact on the people, and they panic, and they start to spiral down into despair. Numbers 14, verses 2 through 4. If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness, 
Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. They want to go back to Egypt. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? I mean, that's the whole reason why God didn't take them through the Philistine country. And yet here they still end up in this place of wanting to go back to Egypt. They've seen the goodness of the land and the power of God up close, and it's not enough to move them forward into the land. Two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, try one more time to assure the people. Verse 7, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. But the two guys are unsuccessful in convincing the people that the land is totally worth going in. That they should be saying, we are like grasshoppers, but Ephes, the Lord is with us. They couldn't conceive of a God who would even carry grasshoppers through the desert and into the land. Instead, they want to stone Joshua and Caleb. And with that, their fate is sealed. God hits the reverse button, and he sends them back into the desert. It's not a, a complete reverse, because they're not going to go back to Egypt. That's not even an option for them. It's more like a pause button, and it's going to be a very long pause, a 40-year one. During those 40 years, there's going to be a changeover. No one from the generation of the Exodus that came out of Egypt no one 20 years of age or older except Joshua and Caleb are going to live to enter the land. At the end of 40 years, a totally new generation is going to go in. You know, um, most people who read the story uh, end up really judging the spies for being so lacking in faith especially since they witnessed all these great miracles from God, right, as they left Egypt. And I certainly thought they were pretty weak and whiny, too. I could take this story and use it to say, okay, don't make the same mistakes as the ten spies. Believe like Joshua and Caleb. Trust God and step into everything that God has for you with faith and confidence. I could... But if you guessed, I'm not going to, <laughs> okay? I'm not going to because a choice like that is not that simple, is it? I want to suggest that we not judge the Israelites too severely because the reasons for them backpedaling were complicated. In some ways, their response of fear to what they saw and regret of leaving Egypt was predictable. I'd even say that the wanderings in the desert for 40 years was inevitable. In one Jewish commentary I read, the rabbi felt um, the wilderness punishment was actually the natural trajectory and the most likely outcome of the spies' mission. I, I agree. Of course, the people had legitimate reasons to cry out for freedom. It was, yeah, they were suffering, and they wanted relief from oppression, but that didn't mean they were ready to handle the freedom God had for them. 
The jump from Egypt to Canaan was too far, too sudden. How do you undo 430 years of displacement and suffering and enslavement? How do you make up for 430 years of silencing? Because there are blank pages in their history book. Not a single story is told about God, about their families, or their existence in Egypt. It's totally blank. From the perspective of the Israelites in Egypt, God has been silent and absent for hundreds of years. Who wouldn't lose touch with faith for that long? And if they had any faith, the content only consisted of the stories of three ancestors and a promise that probably took up one paragraph. That was it. God knew that they weren't ready to face the Philistines by the direct route, but a year later, they still weren't ready to face the giants or the grasshopper in the mirror. In this pivotal moment of their journey, um, the people not only deleted God's goodness for them, but they deleted their own imagination, their own greatness and capacity for freedom. They deleted their possibilities as a people journeying with God who was present with them. One could accuse God of setting them up for failure, but what if ordering the mission was actually an act of mercy? Perceiving giants forced them to look in the mirror to see that they didn't have the faith that they needed in order to to get through the hardships that were up ahead, and they were going to be completely different than the hardships they faced in Egypt. They wanted to go back to what they knew in Egypt, even if it meant suffering and oppression, because what they saw ahead was terrifying. It was unknown. Egypt was familiar. Their identity had shriveled into a grasshopper mentality formed under slavery. And this self-understanding would have sabotaged their efforts to lean into God and to receive all the good things God had for them. So the Israelites had two core problems that needed to be addressed. Their lack of faith in God's goodness and their lack of faith in their own goodness as a people chosen and belonging to this good God. In other words, their theology and self-understanding was in very, very bad shape. So they needed more time, and they needed a safe place to form a new identity in the mirror, and they needed more time to get Egypt out of their system. The Israelites were stuck in this loop of fantasizing about Egypt. It still had power over them, organizing their inner lives and driving their desires. It would take time to really break free from that abusive system, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Even though they knew God was present with them, it wasn't enough. What assurance does the presence of God offer if you're not sure God is good? Let me say that again. What assurance is the presence of God if you're not sure God is good? And this is where they needed a faith shift. And the wilderness was the best option for encouraging that kind of shift. For figuring out who this God was to them now. 
beyond the stories that they heard as children. From the perspective of the Israelites, the desert was a punishment, but from a different perspective, the 40-year pause in the desert was a mercy. I hope by now you're feeling connected to the Israelites in this story. We're not all that different from them, are we? And if you're connecting with them, um, I want to invite you to consider this, to make the desert your friend, to view it as a gift rather than a threat, to see it as a place for sorting out your relationship with God and who you are. It's a place that you can gain clarity instead of getting stuck in frustration or confusion. The desert can be a safe place to open conversations and ask the questions that probably won't be asked anywhere else. The desert can be a safe place to figure out this dance between um, yourself, your identity, and God, because the two are really intimately connected. The more you understand self, the more you understand God and vice versa. When you find God, you find yourself. By the way, the connection between self and theology is one of the reasons why um, leaving or breaking free from spiritual abuse is really, really hard. Um, Those who have been successful in leaving an abusive system or relationship uh, know that undoing the damage to self and theology is hard, hard, painful work. With all the hashtags that are hitting us these days, it's no wonder there are faith shifts that are happening all around us. I don't know about you, but I keep having a lot of conversations in which there's references to spiritual deserts. The desert is uncomfortable, really uncomfortable. But there are seasons when you need to hit pause and not be in a hurry to get out of it. All of us fall along a spectrum of a mixture of good and bad theology, and it takes time to sort them out. The Israelites were told by God to head into the desert, but for some of you, you might have just like woken up one day and realized your spiritual life is awfully dry. Something feels very different maybe very wrong, and you're not sure how or why you got there. That's how it was for me. It was kind of like a really slow descent into my happy, not happy valley, it was death valley. (laughs) Whoa, that was a slip. (laughs) But lately, I've become more comfortable with the idea of choosing the desert. Let me explain. For some, choosing the desert might look like a moratorium on church attendance. Or maybe not reading your Bible or having personal devotions. Basically, choosing the desert is like deciding to fast. Fast from voices or influences that are um, contributing to your frustration or confusion. It's like a um, spiritual detox. The desert's a good place to have our constructs of God challenged because then they can be exposed and evaluated and then maybe adjusted or even abandoned. In some cases, using the sandcastle analogy that Kurt has brought up a couple times, the constructs need to be just outright flattened. And that's where I ended up 
<laughs> in one of my desert experiences. I ended up seriously doubting God existed at all. And back then, which was about 30 years ago, uh, I was terrified. I was terrified to tell my husband. I was terrified to tell my church community um, that I had become an atheist. I knew that there was no way that they could handle my faith shift. Um, I hated looking at or seeing their blank looks every time I brought up a question or a doubt. And their efforts to fix me did not help at all. <laughs> when John finally realized what was happening, um, he'll tell you that he felt helpless. Unfortunately, I did not have the courage to quit going to church. So I would sit in the pew, and I would just feel really angry, frustrated, and, uh, and I felt really hypocritical, which was really tough for me. That all changed one day, though. It was about seven years into my desert when um, an old friend suddenly showed up at my doorstep. And Helen became a catalyst for my, another faith shift from atheism to belief. But here's the thing. Even though I found God again, at a certain level, I maintain space for atheism even as I journey forward with a deep and committed faith in Christ. Let me explain what I mean by that. <laughs> atheism, okay? Atheism is a rejection of the existence of God. That's the definition, right? That's where I ended up after years of not being able to connect life with faith. And, uh, and it was so much easier to believe that God didn't exist than it was to keep seeking God and get like total silence, like nothing. It was easier to say, ah, he just doesn't exist. But what I was really rejecting was the existence of a God that was taught to me by others. What I believed about God actually did not exist. My concepts of God's nature and existence had come from many sources, but that didn't mean my concepts were true. There were things that I believed about God's character or what I thought God should do that needed to be dismantled. The God I was imagining needed to die. After I encountered Jesus and I regained a faith in the existence of God, I had to reconstruct what I really believed. And over the years, I found that my faith continues to evolve. What I believe now is different than what I believed 20 years ago, 10 years ago, even five years ago. I keep on discovering concepts of God that I need to reject so that new ones can take its place. And that's what I mean by maintaining a space for atheism. It's this continuous cycle that moves forward in some way, but keeps this conversation going between my atheist self and my believing self. Does that make sense? Okay. If not, you can talk to me later. Okay, I'll give you more. Um, I don't think I'm being neurotic, <laughs> but I've come to a place of bringing my whole, whole self to the table where I want to build or want to have this tension between being passionate with what I believe about God and being open, knowing that since I'm human, it means that I can be wrong about what I believe. And if I'm not the only one doing this 
keeping this tension. If I could be in a community that gets this tension, um, then there's a possibility of having some really fascinating conversations. And we can become fertile soil from, for some amazing growth. Holding this tension well is something that I was inspired to do after um, hearing the story of Catherine Jefferts Scorey. Now, she, in 2006, became the 26th presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church. She was the first woman to hold that position. And under her leadership, the Episcopal Church became open and affirming. And it was rough. There were so many churches that opposed the policy and threatened to split. But here's what I really love about her. She accepted the reality that people could read the same scriptures and come away with opposite interpretations. Yet she was committed to staying at the table, to remaining in conversation. I love this quote from her. Disagreement is a mark of possibility. Disagreement is a mark of possibility. She also said this, if we are all sinners, then each of us may be wrong about where we stand. Human beings made from humus become Christ-like when they know humility. We are finite creatures who can always be wrong. Bishop Scorey models for me that tension between passion and humility that I want to keep. Recently, a friend of mine posted a quote by Thomas Merton, a Trappist monk who lived in the early 1900s. And in, I love this quote because it captures what I'm trying to say. If the you of five years ago doesn't consider the you of today a heretic, you are not growing spiritually. You have to think about that one. Right? Let me say it again. If the you of five years ago doesn't consider the you of today a heretic, you are not growing spiritually. Okay, so officially from the pulpit, you've been told you can be an atheist and a heretic, okay? <laughs> I hope you know what I mean, right? <laughs> okay. I, um, I want to tell you a story. Uh, it's a little bit long, but um, I want to tell you a story about the face shift of someone who for a while kept that shift a secret because members of her family that held to a certain conservative viewpoint <laughs> uh, would have thought her a heretic, especially her dad if he, had, he was still alive. He was a Bible school professor and a pastor. That doesn't concern her today anymore, but it did back then. So a few years ago, Rhoda, my sister-in-law, John's, one of John's younger sisters, came over and to tell me about a journey she was having with God, a journey where she experienced a complete shattering of her faith. So what I'm about to describe is really a lot of her own words. The initial shattering happened over a period of time as um, the trauma of multiple incidences of sexual abuse surfaced. Her first experience of sexual abuse happened when she was three, when two teenage brothers next door took advantage of the fact that there was a lack of supervision. Now, John would tell you that with 12 children, yes, he comes from a family of 12 kids, it was impossible for his mom to keep track of everyone all the time. 
Rhoda also had to deal with the childhood fear of her father's um, violent outbursts of anger. So these experiences of multiple male abuses over the years built up fears that she kept hidden behind a facade, um, a facade of self-hate and false spirituality. Then she started hearing voices in her head, voices of hate and guilt and suicide, and it really scared her. She started begging God for help. For the love and freedom she had been taught as a child was promised by Jesus. But God was silent. Night after night, well after 11 p.m., she would, when all her kids were finally asleep, she would go for a walk in the neighborhood. And in the darkness, she begged God to speak, to answer her cries. But there was nothing, nothing. Then one night, the moment of her shattering happened. And in that moment, this is, she had this vision. And what came to her was this vision of a glass vase that shattered to the ground right in front of her. And she realized that each of the pieces of glass in front of her represented the specific beliefs that she had about God. She saw herself rushing to the pile of broken glass, trying to decide which piece of her face she wanted to pick up again. And she discovered none of them, none of them <laughs> were ones that she wanted to keep. Everything about God was smashed to bits. She felt grief and total hopelessness. So she was uh, pretty desperate, and she decided to confide in a friend who encouraged her to contact a spiritual director that he knew well. During the initial conversation, the director told Rhoda that she needed to tell Rhoda of one piece of her theology, and if Rhoda was not comfortable with that piece, then it probably would not work for her to be her spiritual director. She proceeded then to tell Rhoda that God was a feminine presence for her, that every time she referred to God, she would refer to she, call her she. Now, Rhoda uh, told me that that, that was uh, new, for sure. Um, she didn't know what to think about it, but she was in this place where everything about God had been shattered. Nothing of God existed. So she thought, well, it won't matter anyway. So she continued uh, in a relationship with this spiritual director. Then one night on one of her walks, everything changed. These are her words that I, I think would be better if she told you. I was at the end and so, so empty. I had walked every night sobbing, begging God to speak, to tell me anything, give me any hint of existence, Say he loved me. One night, I stopped crying. I had given up hope, and then I decided, what the hell? I'll do what my spiritual director does. I said out loud, okay, God, if you want to speak to me with a female voice, go ahead. And at that moment, as if she had been waiting for that, she practically interrupted me, and I heard her voice say, I love you. And I knew it was true as true as every love I had ever wished for, right to my core. And I wept 
and wept. Every one of Rhoda's concepts of God have been shattered, but one person gave her a piece of theology, a piece that she had never considered before. And when she picked it up and used it, God exploded into her darkness, into that void with a voice of love. Every summer when Rhoda comes home for a visit, I see transformation. Every time I see her, she tells me about the things uh, she's learning about God and about herself, how it changes, how she looks at the world, and more importantly, how she looks at herself. She's learned compassion and healing and forgiveness for herself and also for the ones that harmed her. So there are a couple of reasons I wanted to tell you Rhoda's story. For one, it illustrates the power of language. Language matters in our God talk. It's connected to our theology. The words we use can subtly undermine and distort our understanding of God. If changing our language about self matters, and I think most of you would agree, then changing our language about God also matters. It has the possibility of opening doors to meeting God in a new and fresh way. Secondly, you know, whether you experience a complete shattering like Rhoda did or not, um, the desert is totally worth finding self and finding faith that is whole, life-giving, and filled with goodness and possibilities rather than those delete buttons. We're going to enter into a time as we come to the table to share communion together, and I'd like to go ahead and invite the, the guys to come up. As we prepare, I want to fast forward um, to the Gospels and remember Jesus' experience in his own desert. You know, after Jesus was publicly announced and uh, baptized, instead of going straight into ministry mode, he, like, turns around and makes a beeline for the desert, and he disappears for 40 days. That little detail is an intentional connection to the story of the Israelites in the desert from the book of Numbers. The fact that Jesus willingly chose to go into the desert can help us to not be afraid of it. God is with us in whatever fears we face, in whatever challenges we have, and whatever lessons we need to learn or unlearn. God is present with us, and he, she, is good. At the table, we're reminded that Jesus not only went into the desert, but he also went into the tomb, and neither of them kept him back. So as you take the elements, think about this. Jesus, God, the source and creator of life faced his greatest unknown, death, for the sake of love. Everything he did was to prove that God is good and God is love. You are loved.